Section 10 of Mornings at Bow Street by John White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Coachman's Conscience A hackney coachman appeared before the bench upon a summons to answer the complaint of a gentleman from whom he had extorted seven shillings and sixpence for a four-shilling fare. "'How could you think of attempting such an impudent extortion?' asked the magistrate. "'Why, your worship,' replied honest Kochi, "'I'll tell you how it was. I knows I'm guilty, but I'll tell you how it was, and I hopes you'll take it into your consideration.' and not be too hard upon me. The Gemnin's servant, what rode on the box with me, said to me, says he, as we were toddling a little ways down Oxford Street, your worship, says he to me, says he, Cochee, says he, there's a wedding in this job, so you needn't be afeard of laying it on a pretty thick, and then, you know you can tip me a bob for my own cheek and pray what is a bob asked his worship why a shilling your honour all the world over when he asked me to stand a bob your worship i thought he was a rummish short of a customer but howsomever i took the hint and when i set the german down i asked seven and sixpence instead of a four shillings god forgive me but I thought I couldn't in conscience ax less. And pray, asked the magistrate, did you give the servant the shilling you had promised him? No, your worship. I wouldn't give him anything, cause I thought he didn't deserve it, after putting me up to diddle his own master in that manner. The gentleman said it was clearly true that on the day in question he had been present at a wedding, but he had received an excellent character with the servant and as he had now lived with him several years, during which time his whole conduct had been unexceptionable, he would not believe him capable of making such an unprincipled proposition. The magistrate said he had little doubt that it was a mere invention of the coachman's, and even admitting his story to be true, it would be no palliation to his offence. Honest Kochi was then fined twenty shillings for the pilability of his conscience, and he left the office, observing, I'll take the nation good care how I gets into this here sort of a scrape again. Dancing Donagu Michael, or as he himself called it, Michael Donahu, was brought up on a warrant for assaulting and beating James Davis. Mr. Davis is a tall, gaunt, lank-haired, melancholy, middle-aged Englishman. Michael, on the contrary, is a short, plump, curly-headed, bushy-whiskered, merry little Irishman. They both lodge in the same house. Michael, uppermost, and thence comes the grievance. For Michael, when he is beery, and seldom's the time he is not, is given to dancing, Mr. Davis is a man of staid and serious habits, who goes to bed every night when the clock strikes ten, and every night, just as he gets into his first sleep, here comes sprightly Michael, brimful of beer, and begins dancing his Irish fandangos about the room overhead, 
until he shakes down great patches of the ceiling upon poor Mr. Davis below. Nay, it was stated by a credible witness that he sometimes danced so vigorously as to shake down the ceilings in the adjoining house. Mr. Davis bore these irregularities as long as he could, but at last his patience, as he said, was quite entirely exhausted, and he ventured to tell Michael that he would bear it no longer. When, what does Michael do, but seize the poker, and threaten to Kennedy him if he dared to interfere with his private amusements? Mr. Davis, quiet as he is, had too much spirit to let any man swagger over him in this manner. And whilst Michael was chalaying about with his poker, he attempted to take it from him, and in the attempt he received sundry thumps on the head and shoulders, which made his eyes strike fire. Thus far was Mr. Davis's statement, and now for Michael Donahue. Please, Your Honor, said he, is it because a man can a dance if he's married? And Mr. Davis, says I, is it myself that isna to dance the bit because the lazy likes o' ye canna get your sleep before sundown? I can't go to the bed in reasonable time when I like myself, Mr. Davis, says I. Come out o' that, ye Irish Grecian, says he. Come out o' that, and I'll give it to ye. And he pulls the coat off him and shakes his fist in the face of me and comes out of that says he again and i'll give it to ye faith mr davis says i and if you'll give it to me you shan't give it me for nothing for be the powers i shall kennedy ye my jewel and i took kennedy to myself and he had his fists in his own hands your honor and faith it wouldn't be easy to say which of us had the best of it some witnesses brought by mr davis admitted by mr davis had challenged michael to come out of his room and that something like a regular fight had taken place between them and therefore the magistrate dismissed the warrant but michael said his worship do not let me hear any more of your tricks drink less beer in future i shall sir said michael and michael let me advise you to go home in better time in future i shall sir and above all michael get another lodging as soon as you can and take care that your amusements do not disturb your neighbors i shall sir reiterated honest michael and making a bow so low that the tattered hat he held in his own right hand almost touched the floor whilst his left leg mounted into the air behind he gave his worship St. Patrick's Benison, and let the office a merrier man than he entered it. A Misadventure Among the watch-house prisoners from St. Mary Lestrand was a young gentleman who was charged with having beaten a lady. He was a fine, blooming, well-grown, gently-clad young gentleman, a very Adonis of the woods, and his name was Smith. William Augustus Smith, as we understood. His case had been thus registered in the charge-book by his honor the Knight Constable of St. Mary Lestrand. Mr. Smith charges Miss Charlotte Long with picking him up and striking him, and Miss Charlotte Long charges Mr. Smith 
with knocking her down. Of course it was a cross charge, and his honour, the night constable, of course, detained both parties, and moreover was coarse enough to shut them up down below. But that was no great matter, for Mr. Smith's bloom suffered no deterioration in consequence. And as for the lady, as his honour, the night constable, said, why she was manured to the place. It appeared that on Sunday night Mr. Smith went to one of the theatres, and after the theatre was closed, he went to the rainbow to sup, and after the supper was over, he returned through Temple Bar, towards his home in the west, arm in arm with a friend, and that friend was smoking a cigar. In this way they walked along very comfortably, by not offended, and offending none quietly discussing the beauty of the night, and the merits of the players, and the supper, and the wine, and the waiters at the rainbow, and everything of that sort, until, just as they emerged from beneath the archway of Temple Bar, Miss Charlotte Long, in passing, squeezed the dexter hand of his smoking friend. Now, whether it was that his smoking friend had a hydrophobia of ladies in general, or whether he smoked, Miss Charlotte's long character, in particular. Mr. Smith could not say, but so it was, that Miss Charlotte Long no sooner squeezed his smoking friend's hand than his smoking friend smoked Miss Charlotte's Long's countenance by puffing a cloud from his cigar at it. Mr. Smith could not, in justice, be held responsible for his friend's want of gallantry, but nevertheless Miss Charlotte Long instantly gave Mr. Smith such a friend's want of gallantry, but nevertheless Miss Charlotte Long instantly gave Mr. Smith such a smack on his nice round blooming cheek, that all the avenues of the temple echoed to the blow, and he, fearing the smack would be repeated, pushed her from him, and she lost her balance. And this is the whole truth of the matter. Quoth Mr. Smith. Miss Charlotte Long, on the other hand, declared that she never touched the filthy fist of the smoker, but that, as she was quietly walking along, she rudely puffed the smoke in her face, a thing which she could not abear, and then Mr. Smith knocked her down as flat as possible, like a brute as he was. The worthy magistrate, having listened to these counter-statements with great patience, expressed a wish to see the smoker, and that gentleman immediately came forward, but unfortunately his recollection of the affair had entirely evaporated with the fumes of his own cigar, and eventually the double charge was dismissed. Upon each party paying their own fees, the magistrate admonishing Mr. Smith to keep better hours in the future, if he valued either his morals or his complexion. THE WEDDING RING Mrs. Catherine Cassie was charged with having purloined Mrs. Judith O'Leary's wedding ring. The ladies are both natives of the emerald gem of the western world, the Greenland of shamrocks and shillelaghs. They came to this country together in the days of their youth. They toiled together year after year in the sunny harvest fields. They got comfortable husbands to them. They grew old together. They ate, they drank, they smoked together. They were gossips, sworn gossips and friends. But what is friendship but a name, saith the poet? Let Mrs. Judith O'Leary tell her own tale. Your Honor, 
this is mistress casey the gossip she was to me many a long year in old ireland and since we've come to this and much as it i made of her at all times your honour for we got our bits o livings and we ate and slept and we drank together and got drunk together said his worship faith did we your honour and once too often rejoined mrs judith o'leary making an elegant courtesy the other day your honour we were taking the drops at the blue pig and talking of the old concerns and the talk came up and the drops went down softly and sweetly that's the throats of us your honour and by and by says mistress casey to me says she mistress o'leary says she to me let's go home to our own place and so i will mistress casey says i only we'll have the other drop with the three halfpence that's left in the bottom of it that's the pocket your honour gad's blood will have the other drop gossip says i to her and sure we had and it was a drop too much for the head of me it went round like the hind wheel of an acne rolling and rolling your honour and i rolled home mighty queer that day and i laid meself down on my own bed and the child i had be my own lawful husband tom leary said be the side of me fast asleep only sober as a judge was the child at that same time why shouldn't it and when i waked up says i to me how comed i here says i in my own bed says i before dark says i to myself but i couldn't tell for the life of me your honour in regard of the gin that's the blue ruin as mr jenkins the proprietor merchant calls it your honour well says i to myself sure i'll get up says i for what's the use of lying here like a baste says i when tom leary isn't in it and is coming to it may be and i got up and shook myself and got the water to wash my hands and i looked at him that's the fingers but blank a ring was on them devil burn ye kate casey thinks i to meself but you've got the bit of gold for me at last and i went to her place that's in bainbridge street your honour and mistress casey says i where's me ring what ring says she my wedding ring that i've got with tom leary says i devil and no i know says she don't be tellin the lie to the face of me says i for sure there's them that seen ye slither it off the finger of me says i be the mother of moses it's a great lie says she thank ye mistress casey says i take that for yourself mrs o'leary says she and what was that asked his worship faith a beautiful blow on the mouth of me your honour replied mrs o'leary laying hold of her upper lip and turning it inside out for his worship's inspection but his worship declined inspecting it and mrs o'leary having let her lip down again proceeded to state that having got this beautiful thump on the mouth of her she did not choose to have any more to say to mrs casey but forthwith handed her over to an officer the officer in question said he had learned that mrs casey pawned a wedding ring on the day of the row but she redeemed it in a few hours afterwards 
and that was all the pawnbroker knew about it. Whilst Mrs. O'Leary was telling her story, Mrs. Casey could hardly be restrained from opening upon her at almost every sentence. She seemed to be bursting with words, and no doubt it was a great relief to her when his worship, at length, gave her leave to speak by asking, Where is this poor woman's ring? Honor bright, your worship, replied Mrs. Casey, in a voice as melodious as a cracked bagpipe. Honor bright, your worship. Devil's the bit I knows about it at all. Oh, Mrs. Leary, but you're a bad one after all of it. You knows you'll say anything but your prayers, Mrs. O'Leary, and meself never to find it out till this present time. Your worship, she give the ring to a man she has. Oh, and is it the likes of me with three children, Tom Leary? cried Mrs. O'Leary, lifting up her hands and eyes in astonishment at the scandal. Mrs. Casey persisted in her story, and at last the charge was dismissed for want of evidence. And ten minutes after, they were seen together at the Grapes, in Bow Street, taking their drops, as good friends as ever they were. End of section 10